Hello everyone and welcome to our first podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Russo, I'm a lecturer here in the English Department at Macquarie University and I'm here with Dr. Michelle Hammerdash who also teaches in the English Department at Macquarie University. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. So in this podcast we're going to bring you a range of discussions about all things literary, including book reviews, discussions of all the big book news, such as reviews of prize-winning books as, prize are, as prizes are given out throughout the year. Uh, we'll have interviews and all sorts of other exciting bookish things. We're going to have a podcast for you about every two weeks, so make sure you subscribe to us via iTunes or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or however you listen to your podcasts these days. So today, since it's still roughly the beginning of the year, and it seems a really good time to do this, we're going to be talking about our favourite books of 2016. So we've chosen three each, um, and how this is going to work is that we're going to alternate titles. Um, so Michelle, would you like to start with your first pick? Yeah, absolutely, Steph. Um, I love a good best of list. I think there's nothing like it for really crystallising both the year that we've lived um, and the books that are the product of that uh, industry, which includes um, us as gatekeepers, which includes publishing companies, greed, economics, all of those <laughs> con those forces uh, that result in, uh, in in the books of, of any one year. Um, so for me, I, I'm going to start with The Transmigration of Bodies by Yuri Herrera, which is a really compact um, novella that um, is something like a, 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 um, it, it, it's, it's noir, it's hard-boiled, um, you've got all the wonderful excess of that sort of um, gothic language and setting. We've got a, a, a city emptied by plague um, and we're sort of tracing the mystery through the wonderful um, guise of a character unforgettably named the Redeemer. Uh, trying to uh, bring to a peaceful end a standoff between two gangster families whose um, star-crossed lovers' children um, have died. And um, so in a sort of a, um, the afterlife of Romeo and Juliet, we have a sort of a Hitman-esque figure <laughs> trying to detangle um, a situation that uh, seems impossible to resolve in any other way than with bloodshed and yes who does it <laughs> I was actually reading this yesterday because you may have mentioned that you enjoyed this to me beforehand um, so I found it um, very compelling I thought it was very Raymond Chandler-esque sort of Mexican Raymond Chandler um, it's got that noir feel it's got um, real grit um, I love the names of the characters so we have the Redeemer three times blonde we have um, the unruly Neanderthal, Neanderthal and the Mennonite. And the Mennonite, um, I've forgotten those. <laughs> the, the, the wonderful um, irony of, uh, of a hitman um, pacifist, I think, um, full, of, <laughs> full of paradox. Um, and, and in fact, I think uh, Herrera is the master of nominative determinism. <laughs> and I think it's that understanding of how to make uh, language, how to maximise the impact of language that makes this a short book but a compelling book and one that has uh, all of the richness um, that we expect from a novel um, with its intertextuality, with its um, marvellous sort of themes of, of love 
um, Cain and Abel, um, detective fiction, um, and yet also um, this uh, freshness, which I think is something that I'm always looking for when I'm reading, uh, because we are at a time when, um, you know, a lot of books that come out feel exhausted and a lot of books that come out feel like they're trying too hard to be different, to be breaking new ground. Whereas I think that Herrera's combination of language, irony, um, wit, because it's a funny book, and, and just unashamed um, sort of pastiche too, um, because he's, he's, not, uh, he, he's not afraid to... Um, Deploy a few three times blonde uh, <laughs> um, as as a as a sort of a gesture towards the the many influences that shape uh, transmigration of bodies. Yeah, and having said that, even though it is a a book that is so clearly um, dependent on other texts, there's a lot of intertextual references to Romeo and Juliet. There is, I think, the Raymond Chandler nature of the book that I'd pointed to before is absolutely intentional. It still struck me as not like anything I'd read before. I think sometimes um, a writer's ability to to capture unexpected images, you know, images that just sear, um, is perhaps, you know, sort of the very mark of um, a writer who, 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 who you need to make place for on a list of um, best of. And I think one of the examples of that is this uh, image of, the, of a pregnant 15-year-old wife of a lawyer, Gustavo, um, who's well into his 60s and um, is never going to discover the wisdom of old age thanks to Viagra. Um, <laughs> and instead um, we get this uh, sort of really poignant glimpse of this, this this girl fingering the ice cubes in the glass of her uh, husband's drink as she prepares it uh, in, in, in the kitchen alone and, and we sort of get this sense of glimpsing into um, a, a sort of a behind um, a behind the curtains scene and, and I think it's the unexpected intimacy and the lyricism and, and also the inventiveness of, um, you know, sort of there is something at one and the same time illicit and yet also innocent um, about that scene. And I think that's where that freshness comes from is because we have a reimagining of where innocence may come from. And in, in actual fact, I think the one of the Redeemer's, um, you know, most redeeming qualities <laughs> is this... Um, this 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 optimism and and this willingness to to put himself on the line uh, for something greater than himself and I think that final image um, that w uh, that the book leaves us with of a character um, who you know sort of with his shaking ribs and his you know bleeding lips and um, you know sort of having just uh, tenderly carried um, the dead body of our Juliet baby girl um, back to her parents is about to head back out into that plague field city um, to once again take on a new quest mm. and the only uh, the only thing that he requires in order to recharge <laughs> those <laughs> rather tired batteries is a glimpse at the night sky um, so I think uh, it, it's it's a book that is um, that is redemptive as much as it is 
violent and apocalyptic. That's what struck me as well, even though it is about um, violence and it's about death and there is this plague that's overtaken the city and everyone's wearing masks in order to avoid contagion and scared of going outside and so forth. It struck me as very redemptive. It struck struck me as hopeful in the end. Um, And I think the world might need a redeemer. (laughs) I think particularly a redeemer with a capital... Capital R redeemer. A capital capital (laughs) R redeemer. And I think uh, it is uh, that glorious notion um, of the transmigration um, of bodies that perhaps so beautifully encapsulates what he's doing where um, we most often think of transmigration as, as the movement of souls and I think in a world where uh, the movement of people mm. is everywhere so fraught um, Herrera has given us an mm. image um, of hope Absolutely, I agree I thought it was gritty, I thought it was funny in unexpected ways and as I said unlike anything I'd ever read before so it was a real standout for me. What was your pick Stephanie? Well my first pick is again a novel that seems to be speaking to the spirit of our times in a very specific way it was actually chosen as an Oprah book club selection for 2016 so I'm in rarefied company Um, and that is The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead Uh, so The Underground Railroad is about Um, slavery in the early 19th century in the United States um, prior to of course the um, Civil War and even though it is a somewhat a realist novel in that it it purports to kind of um, give you a a taste of the experience of a slave girl in that time there's also a magical realist element to the novel because while in reality the Underground Railroad was a network of people who helped smuggle slaves out of the South and into the North. Um, In the novel, the Underground Railroad is an actual Underground Railroad that somehow, by means of some kind of magic, (laughs) has been built underneath the cities of the South and runs all the way to the North. And so it's built by um, ex-slaves and sympathetic white people and so forth. Um, What struck me about this book is... um, that Colson Whitehead gives you the experience of his his main character Cora on the slave um, on the plantation as a slave, and that's about as harrowing as you would expect it to be. Although he writes with such a lightness of touch that it's never overwhelming, I think. Um, but he also does an interesting thing, which is he uses this this magical realist underground to take Cora to a number of cities around the South and in the end, quite north. Um, in America, in the United States, in order to kind of compare the way that race and um, that race is treated, or the the idea of racism has pervaded that that particular city or that particular society. So even when Cora feels that um, she's in a kind of superior position than when she was a slave, um, so she goes, for example, to South Carolina and she works as a nanny, but she finds that in reality that ingrained prejudice that um, perception about African Americans is still just as debilitating in that city as it was on the plantation and so what he does is he actually takes all of these things that were happening throughout the 19th century makes them happen contemporaneously so he plays around with history a bit but what he enables you to do is is not just um, understand 
what the experience of being a slave on a plantation in the South was like, but also as a woman trying to make her way in the world where all of the social forces are against her. I thought it was um, beautifully written. There's a lightness of touch about it. Like I said, it's about the most harrowing <laughs> experiences that you can imagine, but I did not find it um, depressing or ponderous. Um, I thought his writing was evocative and expressive in the best possible way and in in a way the kind of lightness of the writing really draws your attention to the horror of what is happening to Cora. Um, so it's what's not said that's really where the horror lies in the book. I thought it was um, an important book for our times. I think it really taps into a lot of conversations that are happening around race in the United States at the moment. Um, I think it's important that it's a woman character um, because the experience of a female slave is something that he's very um, specific about, the specific horrors that are faced by a female slave. And, I, yeah, I thought it was just an amazing read. I'm pleased that I read it, and it's the book that in, in 2016 that probably stuck with me the longest and that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. Look, I'm really hoping that you'll lend me that uh, after. <laughs> Just don't after expect the... a you know fun read with lots of laughs. <laughs> no, I know, but I think um, this is the thing that uh, makes us so committed to literature is that most often what uh, is required of any one time is actually first and foremost a leap of the mind mm. and I think that's what fiction shows us is that in understanding the degree to which um, so much of the realities that dictate our behaviours are mm. very much based on mm. um, fictions and perceptions and the ability and you know sort of that knowing and not knowing mm. um, so I'm listening to you talk about Whitehead um, you know present us with um, you know sort of situations where um, the character is subjected to just as much uh, sort of racism mm. in supposedly free situations and societies as, as she was in um, as she was under slavery and I think that it's it's those um, mind frame shifts that are so powerful and that literature does so well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think although <laughs> you may see a sort of apocalyptic theme emerging <laughs> in my choices, um, I'm actually going to put forward Michelle T's uh, Black Wave as a second best of for 2016. And, you know, I, I think that there are a number of reasons why I've done that. And one of them is because she imagines the worst. <laughs> um, some of the images of a sort of roiling sea <laughs> with um, fumes so toxic that, that merely walking by the sea is actually going to sort of shrivel your, uh, your, your, your cerebellum, um, <laughs> as well as, um, you know, sort of these expanses as the character who... Um, starts off in uh, in ooh, San Francisco. My geography is not so great. He <laughs> <laughs> starts off in San Francisco and ends up in Los Angeles. And um, you know, there, there's such there's such playfulness in her writing, and so we are immersed in this marvelous um, this marvelous microcosm of of um, characters who are colourful who are uh, often um, either 
drug addicts or um, actually just dabbling recreationally, which I think is certainly um, the, the line that the character Michelle um, in, a, in a sort of a self-referential and, and you know, sort of um, well, um, a, a, a well-used trope of uh, having a, a character um, the name of as the, the same name as, as as our author because this is all about playing with um, memoir with autobiography uh, and and fiction of course um, really just makes a stamp on you know sort of a, a genre of literature that has often um, you know sort of with William Burroughs and Kerouac and um, Ginsburg the likes been marked by by um, by men and I think Michelle T does a superb job of uh, infusing the whole narrative with this wonderful um, joyousness really and then these startling glimpses of a world that you only by bits and pieces begin to realise is not um, the world that we live in, our real world, but in actual fact um, her descriptions of environmental damage are close enough to being uh, uh, commensurate with the way we're living today that at first I think you do actually read them as perhaps uh, realism <laughs> and only later come to realise as we drive through Kauschwitz, um, which is actually just um, a, an absolute... Um, uh, destroyed landscape um, that you can't drive through for the smell um, and in fact it, it is aptly observed that probably the last food stuff of um, humans will be the hamburger um, <laughs> from the fast food joint um, and so we do we have this uh, sort of compelling narrative that explores love um, and then also the very end and most intriguingly writing uh, itself. I think that there's a common theme running through our picks and um, that is that sense of um, imminent, imminent disaster, imminent tragedy perhaps, imminent apocalypse but also a kind of um, a lightness as well and a, a freshness hopefulness and a hopefulness yeah. absolute pessimism and, and I think um, one of the wonderful things that she does because it's so very playful and um, so she will actually uh, bow to her to the will of her characters who don't want to be part of her uh, memoir um, so her lovers who say whatever you do don't write me in I don't want to be written in because she plays with the idea of autobiography uh, and then so she explores what happens if she takes out <laughs> the, the, the lover who saved her um, and what happens is that she becomes an alcoholic <laughs> and so quickly this character needs to be written back in to prevent her um, from, 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 from a descent into alcoholism which of course is the most uh, the, the most unprohibited of drugs so it's not her dabbling with heroin or uh, cocaine or any of the other forms of narcotics that she does in the first part of the uh, the novel but rather it is alcoholism that ultimately very nearly brings her to an end um, so I, I think there's a very very um, savvy playfulness uh, to her relationships to her determination to um, to flaunt um, to, to, to flaunt a very, very sort of um, avant-garde approach to writing, which has this marvellous sort of comic book 
feel to it with um, capitalised dialogue from the from the uh, from our. Uh, I want to say narrator, but she's not our narrator because it's third person, despite the the memoir. Um, and there's just there's just the colour and the ear for Argo, which I think uh, all writers have to have um, in order to bring us um, books that, that that make us drop everything and and read. Well, that sounds like it's very genre-bending, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, the point at which you get to um, the second part of the book where she um, sort of flees Los Angeles, in, uh, where she, she flees San Francisco to arrive in Los Angeles, um, which is where she, of course, awaits the end, um, is indeed a complete act of unwriting everything that you've read in good faith uh, in the first section. Um, so, so a wonderful, wonderful read, I think. That sounds fascinating. Um, I may have to pick that up from you too. Um, so my next pick was Zadie Smith's Swing Time. So that came out relatively recently, late in 2016. Um, and so Swing Time is about um, two friends and it takes them throughout the early days of their friendship as, as quite um, young children um, up until when they're around 30 to 40 years of age. Um, so the narrator is unnamed and um, the character, the narrator, I think is quite interesting. Um, and she meets her friend Tracy in dance class. And the book Swing Time takes its title from the Fred and Ginger, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers um, musical. And so they meet in, in dance class and the narrator is not a particularly proficient dancer but wants to be and Tracy is a very proficient dancer and it, it maps out the course of their friendship. Um, the narrator becomes the assistant to a kind of Madonna, kind of Kylie character who decides to that she needs to save the world and set up a school in Africa. Um, and so, and Tracy becomes a dancer but a, a sort of down on her luck not very um, successful dancer in musicals um, I liked I lo loved the book really because of its portrayal of female friendship the ambiguities of that relationship between um, the unnamed narrator and Tracy I thought again it was an interesting um, examination of race both of the characters are mixed race but um, well one has a white mother and one has a um, white father, one has a black mother and black father, so they're, they're in a different kind of um, <laughs> relationship to their to their um, racial identity. So I, I just thought it was um, compellingly written. I thought it was an interesting exploration of really a lot of aspects of contemporary culture. So, for example, celebrity culture, um, social media, technology, all of these, these um, really contemporary ideas are handled with a real deafness of touch by um, Zadie Smith and it also asks some interesting questions and is quite problematic in areas um, which I think you found because I suspect you've read this. Stephanie, <laughs> I absolutely was up far too late last <laughs> night for me, well past midnight and well past my general bed time. That was my fault, I, um, I did lend it to you. You, you yeah. did lend it to me <laughs> and I did finish it at about 1am last night. So I have not had time for the settling process to occur. So the, I think um, where I am at the moment with my reading is that on one hand I can completely and utterly um, recognise the satire that's going on and I can completely and utterly understand the idea of that really sort of 
unreliable, somewhat apathetic and um, listless, almost listless uh, first-person narrator mm. vocaliser mm. as a literary device, you know, one that draws attention to what does actually happen to a generation when they become completely anaesthetised <laughs> by too much exposure to social media, television, you know, um, etc., etc. Um, so I can I can absolutely understand that um, you know sort of what we're getting with that narrator who, in actual fact, doesn't have a lot of insight into other characters. No. Um, you know, the, the, I, I kept feeling well. You know, there's a flatness to these characters. There's a there's a there's a sort of a, a rather lacklusterness to the to to the narration sometimes. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking, is, is this a sort of a new aesthetic? An <laughs> you know, aesthetic of flatness. Yeah, is, is, is this, well, you know, is this an aesthetic that is actually doing something and um, underpinning a, a more profound idea about, you know, what are the consequences of, you know, sort of, 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 of humans when, when we lose our idiosyncrasy and we, we, we lose our... Um, you know, sort of our decisiveness and our um, and our passion. Um, and is she, in actual fact, is, is she, in, is is Zadie Smith, in actual fact, brave in portraying Hawa, um, uh, an African Muslim ca uh, character who, uh, sort of, over the course of the novel, uh, becomes. A, a, a more and more sort of ardent, in fact, marries into a sort of a modern Islam, um, which you know, sort of Zadie Smith very consciously references as as, as a modern Islam, um, characterised by um, sort of uh, gendered uh, clothing and um, a, 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 a sort of an ascetic um, drive that uh, takes Hawa out of the hub of her. Um, sort of dancing musical family um, and Zadie Smith sort of really does portray her with, with that same sort of flatness um, as she say portrays uh, you, you know sort of the estate back in London or her mother or mm. all of those things and, and so is that sort of a, that is, is that um, does that create a, a, a sort of a, a, an ethical um, a, a, a very much um, sort of homogenous response to um, to obviously really quite uh, controversial and, and difficult moments in time and subject matters that people are finding difficult to write about, or is it just an example of Zadie Smith producing a sort of rather ordinary summary narration? Well, I think that. It, I mean, this might sound like a bit of a, a um, sitting on both sides of the fence answer, but I think it's actually both because I think that what she does is she does flatten the narration to the point where it's you don't really get much sense of the narrator at all throughout the entire book, even though we have you know three hundred and something pages of uh, re, you know reading what's going on inside her head. We don't get that much of a sense of what's inside her head at all. She's only ever reacting to people around her in quite a kind of flat manner. So I think that there is. Um, a sense there that this could be kind of anybody. This is you, this is anybody. Um, so there's like a reader stand-in kind of um, 
relationship facilitated. But I also think that what she's doing is allowing you to um, observe all of these aspects of contemporary society through these, the eyes of this very kind of affectless narrator um, and allow you to kind of come to your own conclusions about all of these um, things that are happening in the book. So, for example, the um, Amy, the celebrity pop star that um, the unnamed narrator works for has this kind of white saviour mentality towards Africa where she's going to go in and she's going to you know set up a school and save the Africans from themselves but of course she's fetishizing this community as much as she's doing anything else she takes one as her lover and um, she that sort of facilitates the breakdown of her relationship with the, um, the unnamed narrator so I think that what she's she's doing is is obviously quite purposive she's doing this kind of very flat narration um, for a reason but I I think what it does it for me it allowed me to kind of engage with the other characters um, more without kind of taking on the attitude that the narrator takes on if that makes sense so I didn't feel I was guided in a particular way by the narrator because of her very flat affect. For example, her mother, um, the narrator's mother, is a very ambitious woman um, and very interested in rising above kind of where she sits in the social hierarchy. And the narrator as a child can't understand why she's not more interested in being a mother and why she's very much interested in education and so forth. Um, and I thought that the the way the narrator relates to her mother really allowed you to see the mother in a different way than um, than you might necessarily see, you know, a mother who neglects her child, who doesn't seem very interested in being a mother. So I thought that there was a kind of playing with focus that allowed me to enter into the book more fully. So there was a sort of an almost escaping, because in some sense she's got fairly archetypal slash stereotypical figures in, in many respects. Absolutely, you know, yeah. The, the, the pop, pop star, star diva, yeah. the, you know, sort of the, the mother, the overachieving mother, or, you know, sort of the exceptional mother. Mm. I, think, I think, you know, she's an exceptional woman in terms of um, sort of intellect and drive, whatever um, one might think of... Uh, or whatever the the narrator thought of her mothering. So I, I guess in some sense, as you say, that affectless, mm. um, uh, that affectless um, sort of style mm. um, certainly allowed us to both recognise uh, that that stereotype and yet at the same time, um, I guess, extricate it yeah. from a lot of the the sort of the the the, the value laden. Um, sort of context that surround those sorts of figures. So I, I think that there was a definite, mm. um, you know, sort of effort to to acknowledge that, um, you know, sort of the, the the value systems that shape so much of the way that we um, respond to characters in fiction, which of course have a history and and, and a mm. politics, um, and. You know, and that's why I was so um, on, and it may take me at least, you know, a week or two to work <laughs> out where I'm going to come down on this one, as it as a sort of a, as as an aesthetics of um, flattening, where we have this sort of uh, egalitarian um, representation of all the characters, regardless of whether um, you know, sort of, we have a, a whether we have a sort of a, a, a Muslim zealot, mm. or whether we have a, a pop star diva, <laughs> or whether we have you know, sort of the the the, the mother in parliament, mm. um, or whether you know, sort of, in actual fact, 
in concept um, that is incredibly fascinating, but what happens in, 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 in the practice and in the experience of reading mm. and how do we distinguish between some passages that really did feel very ordinary mm. um, where, you know, I, I, I think that there were there, there was over-explaining where there was oversimplifying. I mean, there's, 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 there's a sort of a thank you to the, the text that she used in order to research um, the work that she did or, or the, the section in, in Africa and... Um, I, I guess I guess in 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 that uh, section in the village, I was very much for a long time sort of, and I guess perhaps it is once again purposeful, um, marooned. Mm. And um, yeah, so so is it the ultimate in a, a, a sort of a stylistic, um, a, 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 a stylistic decision? Um, that does precisely and, and and successfully what it intended to do. Well, um, I think that the narrator is marooned, really, because she's surrounded by all of these people who, even though they they sort of fall into these broad stereotypes, they're also extremely strong, um, decisive characters in the way that she's not. So her mother is very has a very kind of clear path through life. Um, Tracy, in her um, determination to dance and um, in her experiences, has a very kind of strong personality and will. And she doesn't. And she never really comes to terms with her identity at all because she just sort of floats through life and, and sort of latches on to whatever is, is sort of happening around her. So, for example, she latches on to dance, yet we're told repeatedly that she's not a very good dancer um, and that she just doesn't have that ability that she so sort of craves and then in her relationship with Amy again she's drawn to you know the charisma of the of the celebrity she's drawn to the the kind of um lifestyle that very kind of rarefied luxurious lifestyle but she's periphery to that lifestyle she's only ever a hanger on and she realizes you know far too late um that that her connection to that lifestyle can be severed extremely quickly and extremely easily um and so i i guess that what i found is that i was quite um drawn to that and sympathetic to that kind of um, lack of identity and lack of understanding where she fits into the world. I thought that was a um, an interesting comment on um, the world today and all of the different um, things that pull on your identity and that, that drifting feeling that um, a lot of people, I think, experience of not quite knowing where they fit into the world, um, what their relationship is to those around them. She doesn't even really have a good understanding of her relationship to Tracy who is her you know childhood best friend who she's grown up with and she has very ambivalent um feelings towards her which I think is is quite a realistic portrayal of female friendship but I also think again underlines the fact that she hasn't come to grips with her with who she is she hasn't come to grips with where she is in the world she doesn't really understand what she's doing she seems to make decisions that are strange um, inexplicable and I think that um, your feeling of being marooned in the novel is I think Zadie Smith putting you in that position of the narrator so I think it's a quite clever tactic to make you feel as sort of driftless and unsure as a narrator but I can see absolutely how that might alienate readers. Look it's it's it's, it's a fascinating book and, and as I say I, I was up 
<laughs> in the wee hours of the morning, which are the wee hours for me. Any book that can um, keep you up to 1am, I think, is a, is a um, great book. <laughs> absolutely. And so what was your final choice? Well, um, anybody who knows me knows that I um, love, adore and worship Margaret Atwood. So my la- final choice for today is Hagseed by Margaret Atwood. Snap. <laughs> so we have some overlap here, don't we? We, we do indeed. Um, so what for you, just saying? Um, well, Hagseed is part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series, which is a series that Hogarth um, Press has been releasing where Famous novelists such as Margaret Atwood um, and Tyler's done one. Um, Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson's done another, thank you. Um, where they take on Shakespeare plays and turn them into novels. And the way that Margaret Atwood has done this is to take The Tempest, that's the, the play that she's chosen, um, and turn it into a story about a very embittered man um, who has been at the head of a theatre company and he's pushed out of his theatre company um, by his rival and then later on after a period of time uh, basically sulking um, he starts working in a prison and puts on a production of The Tempest in the prison with the prisoners playing all of the characters except for um, Miranda who comes in who is a outside actress who comes in to help them um, so it's partly about putting on this play The Tempest but it partly restages The Tempest in this man's story so I thought it was clever I thought it was funny as with Atwood it's very kind of witty and um there's a lot of um there there are a lot of lines that leap out of you as as only Atwood could do and I thought that it was the most successful of the Hogarth Shakespeare's I think I've read them all now and this one is by far my favorite I think she was very clever to actually set the novel around a production of The Tempest because the without kind of you know having to tell you all of this or writing an essay about The Tempest, she managed to make me want to go back to The Tempest and reread it with the insights um, that this novel gave me in mind, which I think is the kind of ultimate thing that these adaptations should do. Look, I I adored Hagseed, and and I think that there were so many reasons for that. I I think that, um, you know, she she really... Because Felix, uh, our Prospero character... Uh, is, is, is very much um, devastated at the opening in, in ways that seem almost unimaginable. In, in fact, that opening of the book, I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to sustain <laughs> this over, you know, the next few hundred pages where, you know, sort of in the space of a few pages, he loses his wife and then his toddler mm. daughter, which, you know, we all know through mm. through Shakespeare and through our literary mm. um, training, uh, you know, you do something to a child and, mm. you know, sort of the affect... <laughs> Yeah, meter right. just hits the, you know, it, it just it, it, it you 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 sort of um you you your your reader is at your mercy, um pretty much, and I think for me as well, you know, uh because we have uh this 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 wonderful um you know creative, uh extravaganza. Um, occurring inside the prison and, and you know, th- that is probably um, that central theme that's um, introduced and reintroduced and thought and rethought. I think that, um, you know, the play is uh, and indeed the um, in Atwood's re- reimagining of it, uh, she very much taps into the world of today with this questioning of legitimate and illegitimate 
power mm. and also the types of scheming, the, the Machiavellian machinations um, that at w one and the same time fascinate, compel, and yet also cause the reader some real disease towards the end um, when they do feel as though they are slipping into the realm of, of, of being uh, repellent. Um, and we're really worried about what line Felix is going to walk um, well, exactly. with his revenge because it yeah. is a revenge play. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about it. I keep calling it a play, yeah. novel. <laughs> novel. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is that you, you do go along with Felix um, for large amounts of the novel and, and she does build sympathy for this character who has lost so much and, you know, the he's lost his wife, he's lost his child, he's lost his job and he's, he's really his identity. But then he's going so far with his revenge in that he's using the Tempest as a way of getting back on his enemies. He's using the staging of the Tempest. And you realise as you're reading the, des the description of this production that's happening in the, in the prison, you realise that if you're in that situation of experiencing the play and the way they use the prison as a, as a kind of labyrinth in order to trap certain characters um, in the prison in various iterations, um, you think, my God, this is just over the top. But then I think that um, Felix backs down in a way too, which again is exa exactly what happens in The Tempest. It is a revenge play. Um, and, you know, Prospero does not go to the... Ex the, the extremes in that play that he could with his revenge plot. He sort of dials it back a bit um, and has a kind of change of heart. So I think that um, that's interesting because the way she, she manages sympathy for Felix and the way she manages that feeling of like this has all just gone a little bit too far um, is very clever. I really love the way she maps the island onto the prison. So the island in the, um, of the Tempest she maps into the prison. Um, it's a mysterious place. It's a. She makes the the prison into a mysterious kind of labyrinthine place. Um, she makes the prison into this place that um, is, you know, it's confined. It's a prison, right? But at the same time, there seems to be potential there because all of these people are coming into contact with art and literature in ways that excite them and stimulate them, um, in ways that they would never expect. So it's a place of both confinement, as the island in the Tempest is, and also magic. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I think that we found that in all of our books we were sort of looking at uh, sort of this, this hopefulness emerging out of, of pessimism. Mm. And, you know, you, you, you sort of get this, um, this uh, mise en abeme yeah. in that sense that we have Felix who is destroyed and, and takes himself off to a hut in, a, in it's got to be a Robinson Crusoe-esque yeah. um, endeavour to sort of... Beard and all. Um, Haven't we all know. wanted to take ourselves off to a hut? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, and in the Canadian winter, no less. Um, Maybe not that. <laughs> and um, so, so, so he is, he, he is a man who has had everything taken from him. Everything. Mm. Um, and then we have uh, this sort of descent into an underworld because, mm. you know, we are. We are, we are passing through. Um, we are offering our coins mm. um, as, as we pass through the gates into the underworld. Um, I can't remember the two characters who are yeah, um, who constantly... Yeah, yeah, the, the and, prison guards, yeah. And then, of course, we're entering into this... Uh, and, I, and I think this is one of the powerful things that literature does is it, 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 it reminds us of the... the um, it reminds us of the forgotten potentials 
of our stories and our myths. Mm. Um, and it reminds us that the things that we think we're experiencing for the first time are actually things that in, in sort of different guises have been confronted by humans since the beginning. And, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to this idea of legitimate and illegitimate power because mm. I think of, you know, sort of on one hand the members of parliament, mm. Tony and um, I think it's Sal, you know, with their scheming and their successful, mm. um, you know, sort of bids for power and their control and their step-by-step -step movement up the ladder of, you know, legitimate power by... And they're ousting of Felix in and a very deliberate way, yeah. And then on the other hand, we've got Felix in his... in his in, uh, completely and utterly uh, in exile, working mm. away on his own um, sort of machinations and, and schematics mm. in order to uh, reap his revenge upon yeah. them. And I, I think that what we see is, is that um, just as we had uh, Plato, who thought of democracy as a theatrical... How would you say that? A theatrocracy, um, <laughs> we'll with all with of that. the puppeteering <laughs> and the, um, the, the, the the terrifying risk of um, politics being transformed into a stage. And then, of course, we've got all those magnificent lines from Shakespeare and Macbeth. Mm. You know, the the the, the fool. Um, yeah, and um, all the world's a stage, yeah. and and all of these marvelous lines that keep reminding us of both the power. Um, within imagining um, things and, and that in actual fact it's often from those unexpected locations that have been relegated mm. um, to the hopeless where indeed hope does emerge. Well that's what Felix is doing, he's staging his power isn't he? He's using the, the actual play of The Tempest or his staging of the play of The Tempest as a manifestation of his power. This is the power that he has and he's going to use it in order to over, overcome or overturn their kinds of power, their more legitimate, more um, government sanctioned forms of power. But I think that um, one thing that um, also struck me about, about this novel is that it's so hopeful about the power of literature and we are teaching we're educators and who doesn't love the idea that reading Shakespeare or reading literature in general is going to change somebody's life. What a fantastic teacher is Felix. So despite the fact that his motivations may have been somewhere beyond, yes, beyond the, cla yeah. the classroom, um, which has in itself interesting parallels with academia, <laughs> I, I think, um, what he does in that in that classroom um, is is magic, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think and one, of scenes the, are magical. one of the mm. masterstrokes of Atwood, and, and I think is, is that is those final reimaginings where each of the prisoner has their turn as their final term paper That's right. um, in, in, in giving the reader their take on what would actually happen um, in after the play ends. And I think that, you know, there are, there are so many um, marvellous um, possibilities for... for, for, um, for the, the significance of that act where Atwood isn't afraid of um, going on too long. She isn't afraid of thinking what happens after the final full stop, after the curtain drops. And most importantly, she understands that power of literature that as you're reading the story of Legs, I think Legs is one of the characters, yeah. um, and, and how he imagined um, the, the what would happen on mm. their way back. Um, you, you know, you realise that there, there there's this incredible levelling power of literature mm. when um, there is no way of distinguishing that level of uh, storytelling of legs as 
from everything that happened in the story mm. up to that point. And um, as a masterstroke, I think that was um, brilliant. And, and there's such a there's such a human impulse too to to think about what happened after. Right, oh, we all do so it, and I mean, it, it sounds kind of um, infantile, but it's something we all do. We tell our students not to do. That's right, you know, but we all do it. We think about, you know, okay, this happened, this might have happened, this I, I hope this happened, I hope this didn't happen, and so she just goes along with that and takes you through in her usual style and wit and cleverness. Um, if you have a chance, um, I actually heard Margaret Atwood perform the raps that the characters <laughs> perform in the book, which is an experience um, that you surely have to share with me because hearing Margaret Atwood rap is life-changing and magical. Uh-huh. Um, I think that is probably where we'll wrap up for today with that image of uh-huh. Margaret Atwood rapping, which is the, the best image I can possibly think about. Um, thank you, Michelle, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>